Okay, so I'm going to do a little something different today, and we're going to discuss uh, what we've been doing on Tuesday nights. Uh, Tuesday nights at Wright State, one of the things we've kind of decided is most uh, churches, like our church does a lot with having, frankly, the best Bible teachers I know of on Sunday morning, so you get two opportunities to hear a good teaching. And then um, we do a lot with the one-on-one behind the scene. But the truth is, you know, like if you hear one or two teachings a week, that's really not going to be sufficient to help you grow. That's why we have Friday night worship. That's why we... uh, But so we're really trying to encourage people to consider using Tuesday night or Thursday night meetings at Wright State as kind of like a small group because we just don't have uh, enough mature Christians to have the outreaches we have at, at at Wright Brothers School and at Wright State and at Cedarville and all that kind of stuff and still have like small home groups and stuff like that. So I would like to encourage you to consider using Tuesday nights at Wright State or Thursday nights at Wright State, your home group. Um, It depends on like what is the biggest need in your life. Unfortunately, uh, if you really need to worship more often, a lot of Christians, especially if you're coming out of the place where you really don't have a lot of supernatural manifestations of the Spirit in your life and you're not walking by the power of the Spirit and you tend to maybe be in the flesh at times and stuff like this, um, and, and having an extra worship or prayer a couple times a week, like we have the Monday night prayer, but that's, you know, during the school year is a little hit or miss. But we have, we have great worship every Friday night. And uh, so avail yourself either of that or we have great teaching in, uh, on Tuesday and Thursday nights. And I, I especially like the most important Bible studies I know to do are on Tuesday nights at Wright State. And it's not just for Wright State students. Over half the people who come are not Wright State students. So uh, today I'm going to actually look at uh, the 15 subjects we're covering uh, from the from the fall of 2015 to the spring of 2017 at Wright State Tuesday night meetings. And what I want you to do is look at the bottom where it says Roman numeral 2 on your outline at the 15 topics. And then I'm going to have uh, Eric do this. Eric, sit over toward the middle. And um, if you have a question, you can ask. I'm, we're going to actually have a little question and answer format today. If you have a question... Give it to Eric. He's going to give them to Jason, and Jason's going to pick a few to give to me. So uh, it's going to be like a question and answer thing. While you're thinking of that, I mean, you can ask about counseling, the church, the why do we do the Lord's, you know, what's the meaning of the Lord's prayer, anything. Uh, you can, <laughs> well, Jason's going to screen them, so if it's anything that's maybe an attack or a negative or something, it's not going to get to me. <laughs> Um, and, and and of course, the scripture would encourage you to talk to me about that in in following the normal Matthew six or Matthew eighteen guidelines. In the meantime, while you're thinking, I'm going to just give us a little introduction to this concept of rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity. I want I I kind of want to help us understand why that's so urgent. I had uh, some leaders in our church um, who've join the leadership team just within the last year, uh, say to me that like for several years, they kind of were listening, sitting in the pews, screening out all kinds of things that I was saying because they had kind of in their heart decided 
what I'm saying is too radical or too over the top or too exaggerated or whatever. And finally, they came to see that they were wrong. <laughs> and uh, believe me, God has given us great gifts in this church and, and two teaching pastors that are uh, the most, you know, the most insightful guys I know. Just, just so you understand the depth of what John's about, I never hear one of his sermons that I don't learn something that I never thought about before. And I've been studying this stuff for 41 years. And uh, John opens my eyes to very important things every time. And, uh, you know, he, he actually serves on the board of directors of Dominion Academy, the, the best Christian school within probably a couple hundred miles. And he's the only guy under 50 or 60 that's on the board. He's, uh, he serves on the board of directors of the Association of Churches that we belong to called the Alliance Renewal Churches. And he's the only guy under 60 on the board. And that, that's because they respect his wisdom that much. And I've talked to quite a few board members of both boards who say, boy, John really brings a lot of insight to the table. And so I just want to encourage us that uh, there's some reasons why we really emphasize studying and catechism. And I just did a teaching on, on the importance of catechism a couple of weeks ago and foundational books and you know, I really want to make sure that somebody is helping everyone uh, grow in the Lord. And, and uh, because some people uh, don't grow very much. Some people grow at a snail's pace. Some people grow like a rocket. And uh, I would that everyone was growing like a weed. Uh, so let's start by going to Acts 3, 19 through 21. While you're thinking of your questions, I'm just going to read us some scriptures and I'm going to have to turn to them in my Bible the old-fashioned way. If we can still do those sorts of things in this electronic age. I don't actually open a paper Bible very often. But we don't have Wi-Fi down here, so I can't use my electronic Bibles. Uh, Acts 3.19 says this, Repent, repentance, um, I have a teaching called Eight Definitions of Repentance. It appears over 120 times in the New Testament. That word, The word is mentanoia. It means change your heart, change your mind. But it's primarily turning away from something and aggressively turning towards seeking. And one of the things that a lot of people are pointing out about the millennial generation and the difficulty of helping people under 35 become Christians in our day and age is that there's all sorts of things that are building passivity into people, and they just aren't that aggressive at seeking God. And uh, that's something we kind of, we try to work with pastorally all the time to, to, to see you, you know, we try to find a way to help you get on fire for God, get hungry for God, want to study, want to hear the word, even if it's painful, so you can grow and develop and change and all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, being zealous for God and hungry for God is, is, uh, is something you can build. You can build a hunger for the things of God. So repent is not just about turning away from stuff, but it's about actively seeking to know God, to know his word, to, to, be, to become like him, to be filled with his spirit and things of this nature. So repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. One of the things I'm constantly uh, asking people as a barometer to see if they're getting started in the Christian life is, are you experiencing the presence of God 
in your worship times together and privately, in your Bible times together and privately. Are you sensing a flow of God's spirit? Are you hearing his voice speak to you? Are you knowing the Lord? God doesn't want you to know about God. Every religious person can know about God. God wants you to know God. And that's a big difference. So, and he, it's not that he's upset at you, like, you got to know God. or I'm, Like, he wants you to enjoy, like the Bible says, to long for the pure milk of God's word if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. When you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, you're just going to want more. Um, just like, you know, the little babies, uh, they have certain things they like. You know, I was talking to someone with one of the younger babies and they're talking about which Gerber foods they liked and what, you know, that they didn't like the spinach, but they liked the carrots, <laughs> whatever. But when you taste things you like, you want more. And uh, that's what the Lord desires for you. He wants to, you to taste his presence in such a way that you want more and more. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So uh, Geneva Bible says whom heaven must contain. What that's saying is different than over 97% of Bible-believing Christians believe that Jesus is going to come back because the church can't hold on and the Antichrist is beating us up and things are going to get darker and darker and darker and all this kind of stuff. What this is saying is Jesus is going to stay in heaven until there's a period of restoration of all things. That period actually started at Pentecost, and it's continuing to expand and expand and expand, and it's continuing to bring light to the nations, and it will progress so far that there will be a significant measure of restoration brought to everything that God created. And Jesus isn't coming back till that happens. <laughs> so you might as well get to work. Uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon predicted that the reason the whole, when the negative eschatology was invented, it, it was, it's actually a, what they call dispensational premillennialism, which is the faith of about 95% of evangelicals. When that, that was invented in, in the 1800s, the church had never taught that or believed it before. And Charles Spurgeon predicted it would become very popular because it requires neither faith nor commitment to believe it and follow it. But if you really believe that God's going to change the world and you understand that it has to start with God, God changing me, you're going to say, you're, you know, if you have any kind of, if you get delivered from, you know, sin causes us to be immature and self-centered and think self me this and this and that. Once you, God starts to break through, his love causes you to have compassion for real people with real hurts. And you begin to realize I've got to let God completely heal me. I've got to become knowledgeable. I've got to become wise. I can't just have answers. I've got to become the answer if I'm going to be used of God to, to help real people. And you'll never again camp out having had the Lord take you this far, and so you look back at how far you've come and say, well, that's far enough. And that's what, we're, that's what we're all battling against. We all have different areas of victory, and then we, we camp out and stop. Because we look back at how far we've come instead of looking forward 
to who he is in, in some of the great examples like the Apostle Paul and Peter. You know, Jesus is really a, your example. You're to keep pressing in until you look like Jesus or the Apostle Paul. And that's not unrealistic. There's grace to become that way. So just to, so you see that, uh, the period of restoration of all things. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Jesus quotes this about himself in, in, in the Gospels when he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Lord says to my Lord, he's telling them that this psalm is about me, about Jesus. Sit at my right hand until, that's a time word, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Who are the feet of the Lord? The body of Christ. This is actually a military term. This is an army thing that he's talking about. That's why he says, The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepters. Scepters are the symbol of authority of a king. Rule. Don't get knocked around and kicked around. You know, like, uh, there's an old joke. Pastor said to this lady, uh, how you doing and what's going on? And she said, fine, under the circumstances. And he said, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? <laughs> uh, you're, you're supposed to have the circumstances underneath your feet by the grace of God, and there's grace to do that. Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Notice he doesn't take you out of the enemies. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Like we always like, God, heal me from this. Take me out of this. Don't give me, deliver me from this trial. I, we want instant results with no cost. And that's just not how the journey goes. You won't be able to help anyone if you don't have to overcome a lot of things on the journey. And, and, and you know, like uh, someone who's good at ministry is just someone who had all the same problems as everyone else. And on the journey God took them on, they took notes. <laughs> really that's really what it gets down they took notes and uh, so uh, the rule in the midst of your enemies thy people will volunteer freely in other words he's going to have a volunteer army not a conscripted army not there won't be a draft uh, in holy array from the womb of the doom thy dawn thy youth are to thee as the dew so that Psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, is he's not going to get up from the Father's right hand. When he sat down on high at the ascension, he poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Whenever they anointed a king, they would pour the anointing oil on the king, and it would roll down his head, down his beard, and into the ground below, signifying that the anointing was going to rule the, where the feet, his feet trod. Remember how the Bible tells Joshua and other people that wherever your feet trod, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God's desire is to make you a, a warrior in such a way that your enemies go beneath the feet of your corporate people, the body of Christ, the people, the local church you're part of, that you're part of subduing God's enemies. And so... Uh, and Jesus isn't coming back until that happens. So we might as well get to work, right? So obviously, um, let's turn to just another one real quick. Isaiah chapter 2, which is actually quoted word for word in Micah chapter 4. And if you study 
your any kind of study Bible that it'll tell you Micah and Isaiah were buddies. So who copied this one? You know, you'll notice that in a in a Christian church, especially the guys that are starting to disciple other people and stuff like that, and if they've been discipled by one of the elders and so forth, they start teaching a lot of the same things and even using the same phrases. That's how it's supposed to be. So this Micah and Isaiah, no one actually knows who said it first, but they both said the same thing. And uh, whenever the Bible repeats itself, it usually does so to say, pay attention. This is important. Uh, the word of the Lord which came to Isaiah and Micah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now to come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be wiped out and leveled. Oh, I'm sorry, that's in modern translation. Will be established as the chief of the mountains. And mountains are places where God meets with his people. Mountains are peoples. They're, uh, they're spiritual. They're very significant. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Mountains and houses are two word pictures of the people of God in the scripture. And will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. That doesn't sound like we're shrinking and getting beat up to me. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. Because they're going to see by the community expressions of local bodies of Christ that your guy's way of life is working so much better. And we're just not at that place right now. Nobody is saying, wow, we got to get advice from the Christians about how to balance the budget or uh, how to save marriage, or how to do better job raising kids. They turn to humanistic psychologists or whatever, but they're certainly not turning to the church because we're not significantly uh, shining a greater light. You know, Jesus said, you, plural, are the salt of the earth, talking about the church in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, on your notes there under Roman numeral 1A2 toward the top. The Sermon on the Mount is the basic foundational teaching about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and he uses three metaphors of the church in three verses, and he says, your salt, your light, and your city set on a hill. Same things this is saying. He didn't, Jesus took everything that he said from the Old Testament, by the way. Um, over and over, if you want to understand Jesus, really get to know your Old Testament. And you'll see that actually the entire New Testament is ideas from the Old Testament um, infused with a new vision of Christ uh, that was always there in the Old Testament, but a veil lies over their heart so they can't see it until they turn to Christ. The key to understanding the Old Testament is to know Christ. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he'll judge between nations, render decisions for many peoples. Like most Christians don't even think about this, but Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That actually can be translated, go disciple the nations. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, not a reductionist view of, of the things of God. So that's just uh, a couple things just, just to get us started. And... Um, we talked last week, if you were here last week at the 9.30 sermon, if you weren't, it's one of the best ones I've ever done. Um, it, we, we talked about Matthew 16 and how they, that Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Thank you. And uh, if you remember, 
uh, he took him to a place that was called the Gates of Hades. And he's saying uh, in that you're going to be invading. You're going to go to every place that people are lost, that people are bound by demons, that people are bound by superstitions, that there's idol worship, that there's broken marriages, that there's poverty, that there's troubles, and you're going to go there and build my church. If you first uh, in in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, so Paul says something very interesting. Like today, the if you study the church growth movement of the 70s that led to the mega church movement of the 80s, one of the basic principles was go to the suburbs where the people have less problems and start churches among homogeneous people that have education levels and so forth that aren't so needy. That's what they teach. And if you notice all the big mega churches, they're never in they're never in the troubled neighborhoods or in the cities. So uh, but Paul says, consider your calling, brethren. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26. That there were not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise as the, according to the flesh. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. What God loves is when uh, he takes someone on a journey where... This guy was a high school dropout, or this guy was so emotionally immature, he was abusive to his wife. This guy was so selfish, he couldn't handle money, and he was constantly making stupid financial decisions and never had any savings. He always had debt and so forth. And, uh, and take them to where they're the light, to where people go, hey, I really need some help with my finances, and I can tell that you're the per- you could do it because you are you are an answer. You can always tell new money and wise money because people who don't who, who have ungodly views of wealth, they're house poor and car poor. <laughs> In other words, they have too big a house payment and too big a car payment to actually have any real investments in, in wealth building strategies. Um, you know so. Uh, because they got to have everything now, just like the uh, advertising industry tells them they have to have it. And they're disciples of the advertising industry instead of disciples of the Word of God. So um, so just for starters, I, I just want us to see that uh, if, any, if you really see what the Bible's saying about the church— that will be a stepping stone to you understanding the, the so-called Bible-believing Christianity that developed after the Civil War in America and that has dominated for the last 150 years has given the most lip service to being Bible-believing while actually following the Bible the least of any brand of Christianity that's ever been on the planet in 2,000 years. And it's because many people have many false paradigms of, so that when they read the scripture, it's not just that they don't read it enough. One of the paradigms is this anti-intellectualism that developed because all the liberal nasty stuff was coming out of universities like Darwinism and so forth. So the, so evangelicalism developed kind of an attitude of don't study very much. So one answer is studying more, but it's not just about studying more. My uh, Youngest son had a quote on the back of his door growing up that a teacher had taught him at the Christian school he went to, and it said, uh, said 
Um, practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. One of the things I used to, you know, I, I did an inner city baseball team that won four championships. We didn't lose a game in over three years. And I took all the kids that nobody wanted. Every year I took the kids who had no dads and were overweight or couldn't hit or uncoordinated. Of course, I knew a lot about baseball and I love baseball. But it wasn't just that we practiced more than all the other teams. We practiced the right things. And that's, that's, that's huge. So Jesus is kind of, Jesus is actually, the scriptures are actually giving us lots of ways of understanding what the church should look like if the church is really the church. And if you're progressing towards maturity and not stagnating and not holding back on God's plans for your life, it gives you ways of knowing that. You, and those are called the three tools of grace or the three agents of God's kingdom. The word of God, the Holy Spirit, and, and the church, especially the authority figures in the church that are further down the road than you, will help you know where you're at. So uh, with that in mind, we all see the list of 15. I'm going to see uh, these are the questions, Jason. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm reading a few. Uh, Well, these are actually great questions, and they'll probably take the rest of the time. Very good questions, whoever wrote all these questions. You've recopied them in your handwriting, it looks like. Or, these, or one person asked four good questions. There's four good questions on here. Oh, okay. You wrote these. Good questions. All right, so uh, I'll start with the one that's not Jason's. Why don't we pray a confession of sins every week as a congregation like we recite the creed? Excellent question. And John Weiss would be like, yeah. You know, we, uh, before the church got so busy, Jason and John and I used to sit on the back deck and we would talk about, we were all doing various studies to try to basically understand what it was that the first century Christians did that we don't do uh, in the Lord's day. <laughs> and, uh, that's why we do some of the things we do. If you look at, uh, uh, the reading for the second, um, message that, uh, John threw me a curve cause I didn't know he wanted me to teach on his say, say with his program. Uh, and you know, he's an elder, so I had to do what he said. And, uh, <laughs> and I had already prepared another message. So I lost a few hours, but it was good. Cause I made me study for a few hours some things. Unfortunately, I lost all my notes, but I, I have them still in my mind. I hope enough. But one of the things that we're going to look at Malachi three, and it says, talk, talks about robbing God and tithes and offerings. So Combine that with in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul says to, to uh, set aside on the first day of the week as you prosper and so forth, right? So here's something you need to understand about the Bible. 
that Jesus had trained and discipled a community of believers, chief of which were the apostles. And of, he sent out 70 in Luke 10, but within that, but the 70 others, it says, so 12 and 70 is 82. And uh, he had three, Peter and James and John, that he discipled the most intensively. And, and it's all geometrical, or it's all, uh, Jesus doesn't add, he multiplies. So three times three is nine, and that, that nine makes the 12 disciples, right? And uh, uh, nine times nine is 81, and there were 70 others, so that's 82. Uh, one, 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 no extra charge. But, uh, and there were approximately 120 people in the upper room. So think about Jesus, three and a half years, the best teachings ever. You know, forget about mine and John's podcast. Like if you can get some from Jesus, you know, like if anyone ever gets the audios from Luke 24 when he's explaining who he, in the Old Testament scriptures to him, I, I'll give you my house for those audios. <laughs> you know, give, give me that podcast and I'll give you everything I've ever owned. But, uh, but uh, so... After at, he appeared to over 500 people after the resurrection, but only 120 of them were impacted enough to actually become his follower. And a lot of them went to church, but only 120 of them actually did what he was telling them to do to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Think about that. 380 people who saw Christ resurrected from the dead weren't impressed enough to actually be converted yet. Right? So, once Jesus' community of believers starts to grow in Acts 2, and it, it grows by thousands, and it starts planting churches and so forth, Jesus said that when the Spirit of God came, he would put that, uh, that he would lead them and guide them into all the truth. The, 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 the New Testament communities, under the authorities of the apostles and the second generation of leaders like Stephen and Philip, they lived a way of life that that itself was this pattern. That itself was the scriptures. And when the New Testament is written, they're not trying to write uh, like a manual, like if some of you guys are engineers and you might maybe have taken a class or two on um, what uh, technical writing. Like if you're writing a manual on how to use this machine, you might even go into the design of the machine, the theory behind it, the specifications, how to fix broken parts, and, and how to use it and everything, and you would do it in a very systematic, logical way. The New Testament letters are going to communities that that's been done in, and they're addressing specific issues. So you have to basically understand the life that came out of them and understand the New Testament letters in that light. Does that make sense? G that's why the early church insisted Jesus is the living word, and the written word is where you're going to find the living word. And the New Testament models grew out of the churches. So everything they did was for a purpose. They changed the Lord, Lord's Day from the Sabbath, the last day of the week, to the first day of the week for very specific reasons. Um, this is going to take the whole time just to answer this one question. We should do this more often, actually. Uh, so they did it because God rested on the last day to celebrate covenantally the ending of the original creation. 
But that creation fell, and God began to promise in Genesis 3.15 what's called the proto-evangel, and then through all the law and the prophets, that he was going to build a new heavens and a new earth and a new people. In Jeremiah, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And Jesus rose not on the last day of the week. He rose at dawn, that's important, on the first day of the week. Because Proverbs says, I think it's Proverbs 18.4 or something, somebody can look if you want, but that the path of the righteous shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Like this idea that darkness is going to eclipse everything is actually exactly the opposite of what God's actually doing and what the Bible actually says. So he rose because, and the, the reason the church... We, no one knew what day Christ was born, but the church had a, um, an idea that comes from the Old Testament in the early centuries of let's redeem everything in paganism because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the pagans actually saw, uh, had a holiday that celebrated the winter solstice, which is the, 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 the first day that the days start to become longer. And they chose to put Christmas a couple days after the winter solstice to, and replaced and basically took over and reclaimed with a Christian message, a pagan holiday on purpose. Because God didn't call us to retreat, he called us to take over. And so they infused it with biblical meaning that uh, the, when Christ was born, light came into the world the world in darkness, stillness, light. And, uh, you know, and uh, I love I love Christmas carols. Uh, I think that one's a little old town of Bethlehem. And, uh, you know, like, li I especially love Christmas carols at Friday Night Fellowship. As we, like, we sang a couple Christmas carols, and I had to go in the back because I was crying. <laughs> because every Christmas during the whole Advent season, especially at night, I think about how gross darkness covers the earth right now. How the nations are, like almost every nation has followed this really ungodly idea called deficit spending that came out of a thing called John Maynard Keynes, Keynesian economics. It's really evil. And it's really going to cause a great financial collapse someday. But if the church will have people who follow biblical finances and rise up and have savings and investments and, and not deficit spend, but invest and capitalize. Jesus saves, Moses invest. And uh, <laughs> it's an old joke. But, uh, you know, uh, eventually the world, you know, things crash on the rocks of reality. If you're, I always say you have to be, this, uh, you have to be illusioned in the first place to become disillusioned. When you go through a time of disillusionment, thank God for it. It's actually a positive thing because he's taking you out of having been illusioned <laughs> and, uh, and, and bringing you in, and you're crashing on the rocks of reality, and that's a good thing. So um, the church basically made the first day of the week the Lord's Day, because it's the eighth day of the week, and in the Bible, eight and one are the numbers of new creation. And when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. And the church itself is the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem.
that it, that came down from heaven in the person of Christ and in the outpouring of Pentecost. The, the new is coming. So the church did these things on the first day. And if you read carefully, you'll see that all the things that uh, the, the, the Bible-believing Christians began to throw out in the late 1800s are actually were the practices of the first century church. And although they're not spelled out specifically, if you study the whole Bible enough, you'll see that they were, for instance, creeds. Even an evangelical author like Lee Strobel points out that 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, um, where it says, um, you know, I, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He received it from the other apostles and from the church because all the churches were reciting that, the, that Christ was died and that Christ was buried and that Christ, and that's why it's two times says according to the scriptures because the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied this. And that's why the, when they made the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, they kept those phrases in the Christology parts according to the scriptures. Because they're saying the only scriptures that existed back then were the Jewish scriptures. So creeds were actually part of the church from the beginning. But the creeds kind of got perfected over a few centuries because Paul, and Paul predicts that, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 12, 19. Uh, it could be 11, 19. You can, someone could look if you want. But he basically said that, but heresies, uh, most modern translations call it factions or divisions, must exist among you so that the word so that the way of the truth be will become evident or manifest what god allowed is various challenges starting late in the first century and going through the fourth century to orthodox true christianity gnosticism arianism docetism other if you take the church history class that i'll be teaching this fall we're going to for those who've taken the systematic theology class, we're going to add a church history class. And uh, you, the church had all these false teachings that emerged, and the church would actually have a council where the elders and bishops from all these cities would get together and say, what are we going to do about the fact that these Arian bishops are teaching that Jesus was not the Son of God and that Jesus is not deity? And that there's whole churches now that are deceived with this false doctrine. And that's why they finalized the Nicene Creed. The 27 books we use in the New Testament, called the canon or rule of scripture, they were received by the church and in use by churches before the fall of Jerusalem. The last New Testament books were written about 67 ADs. Now, in fundamentalist Bible colleges, you'll learn that they were in 90 AD and so forth. That's all been very disproven. All of them were written by 67 AD. And all of them were circulating among the churches, and there was a whole reason why they were all received. However, because of the, the way communication was and technology and, and copying, you couldn't just go uh, make electronic copies or Xerox copies. They had to be hand copied. Um, one church might have 21 of the books, and another church uh, over in another country might have 22 of the books. And there might be one or two books that there were some, you know, 3% of the churches had some problems with the book of Hebrews or something, right? But for the most part, there was general agreement which 27 books to use right from the beginning. However, false cults came along, and there was actually a cult called Manichaeanism, 
And he didn't like the God of the Old Testament. He was kind of like, uh, he basically was the modern dispensationalist ideas. Um, and the church had to respond to that. And so the church uh, clarified the creeds with more detail because, again, Paul says, but uh, heresies must emerge among the people so that the way of the truth can become more evident. The reason your $20 bills have all these ways for them to know that it's really a real one and so forth, and they've had to upgrade and upgrade and upgrade how to, how to stop, is because there's counterfeiters. <laughs> and they, and they want to make sure you got a real 20. And that's exactly what the church did in, in causing the creeds that they said from the beginning to become increasingly clear, clear on all the major points of the Trinity, the resurrection, etc. Okay, so all that's a long explanation to the confession of sins. Uh, we actually, it's just because it takes John and, and Jason and I a while with all we have going on, we can't have enough elders means We decided two years ago that we're going to start that. We just got to get the right format for and the right persons to do that. You know, everything we add like that requires raising up some leadership that that's going to be their thing. But um, confession of sins is actually... A biblical pattern all the way through the Psalms and all the way. And uh, if you study the structures of the Psalms, I was just talking to, I think, Deanna Brown about this Friday night. Or it might have been Leah. I don't know. But um, the Psalms start with a call to worship. Come, now is the time to worship. That's a great song because it follows the pattern of the Psalms. So like Psalm 103, David is having a bad day. How can you know that? By reading the law of the reverse negative. So he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's got to talk to himself. Come on now. You're, the sacrifice of praise. Quit being down in the dumps. Quit being pitying, you know, uh, quit saying I'll worship God privately in my heart, <laughs> you know, and all this fleshly arguments. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. And then he follows the pattern like Psalm 100 enter his gates with thanksgiving, he begins to, he says, and forget none of his benefits. And he begins to thank God for all the things he does. And pr praise and, and thanksgiving are related. They're based in all the redemptive things God has done for us through both testaments and in our, in our lives and in the history of the church, right? So he says, forget none of his benefits. He as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. Anybody glad of that one? <laughs> I hope I got a lot of volunteers there. Otherwise, you're in, like totally in unreality. That's one of my favorites. I, I could use it even further. <laughs> but uh, as far as the east is from the west is infinite, right? Keep going. Get out of here. Uh, uh, who heals all your diseases, who renews your youth like an eagle, who crowns and satisfies your life with good things. So David goes from not feeling like worshiping to make himself praise and thanks and get out of this depression and self-pity and funk. And he uh, takes himself by the hand and, and calls himself to worship. Psalm 103 is unique because it's not a, David's actually calling himself to worship, whereas many Psalms they're calling the, congregation to worship, right? And he does this so effectively 
that he transitions into worship. Worship is when you're focusing on God's attributes because you're actually experiencing his holy of holies, his presence, and you're seeing him for who he is. Worship is basically saying, wow. Now we say things like worthy, um, (laughs) holy. We don't just go, wow. (laughs) But uh, you're awesome, dude. Uh, But we don't say dude because it would be too disrespectful. You know, but that's basically what we're saying. Like, you're the greatest. Um, And we're not. And uh, that's why it liberates you from yourself. That's why Satan wants to keep you praising God quietly in your heart. Because he doesn't want you to get set free to worship the Lord. He wants to keep you bound up in yourself and in your own little world. Okay, so, uh, you know, that's why uh, tithing, I'm, I'm happy that some people mail us their tithe check. I'm happy that people drop it off. I really wish people wouldn't just give it to us on all kinds. Like people give it to Catherine or me or, or give it to someone to give to me. <laughs> like I really wish people wouldn't do that. Your tithe is part of your worship. That's why the Bible says set aside on the first day of the week. You're supposed to tithe on the Lord's day. And that actually should be part of your Saturday preparation for worship. That's why we take it right after the worship as, as part of the ongo- and the creeds, the ongoing worship. Now, I'll take it any time because we need it, but I really wish you'd developed a Christian mature habit of preparing it on Saturday night, prayerfully, thankfully, for all that it's meant to be, that God gave you life in the first place, and a tenth in the Bible represents the whole thing. When you give God a tenth, and and the Bible says, I'm preaching the next sermon, I probably should just get off of it, I'll get... Back to tithing in the next sermon, because that's what John told me to talk about. But uh, (laughs) um, you're actually worshiping God and saying, you're the one who gave me the ability to not get fired at my job and and to get a vocational calling and to learn how to work and to learn to be productive and so forth. And you're the one that causes the economy not to collapse. Okay, so the answer, why don't we pray a confession of sins even (laughs) every week? As a congregation, these answers need some studying. So that was um, like we recite the creed because we need the right person to emerge that's really going to take that under their wing and have that. Just like Jake, uh, if you think it's no, just a minute, David, if you think it's no time for Jason, like what part of the thing we have is a benediction. And a benediction is something they practiced in the early church. And it was basically because the first day of the week is the, the congregation of believers all met. They met, they, there's a concept called the one and the many in the Bible. All believers came together on the Lord's day in, in a geographical area. But then they met in small groups from house to house throughout the week. Right? That's why we have Tuesday nights and stuff like that and Friday nights. And you need both in your life, but a minimum starting point is to at least worship the Lord faithfully. Like the average Christian today goes to the Lord's Day about 40 out of 52 Sundays a year. And they don't they miss because, you know, the sun was in my eyes and I had a toenail from, and, and vac- family vacations and all sorts of things. That's just not biblical. 
they they actually considered it a really really serious thing to miss the lord's day and on the lord's day we do all these things and yes we are moving towards having somebody be in charge of, and we're developing a leadership team. Someone's going to be in charge of opening the service with a confession of sins.